Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, let's talk retail. We had a lot of the retailers report their numbers over the last a week to 10 days. Very solid numbers. Uh, some cautious outlooks, the Delta variant obviously being a big uh, issue as well as supply chain issues. Let's really dig down on the world of retail. We can do that today with Elaine Kwan, co-founder and partner of Quantified. She was a former head of luxury at Amazon. Elaine, thanks so much for joining us here. Again, some pretty good numbers out of the retailers over the last week or so. How are you thinking about the important back to school and then, of course, the holiday shopping season coming up? Absolutely. Paul, Taylor, thanks for having me. So when we look at the holiday season this year, what we can expect is that everything is going to start earlier. Uh, brands and retailers have lost so much, as we know, over the last 18 months. And frankly, during the last year, uh, brands and retailers cut a lot of their manufacturing, their purchase orders, inventory movement, because they didn't know when things would start moving back into um, you know, normal retail cycles. However, Q4 2021 has been pinned as the time to return. And so we're starting to look at Q4, not just starting in November, but frankly, starting in September next month. So I would expect to see fantastic new products starting to come out. Uh, lots of brands know that they cannot afford to risk another peak season going awry. And so we're going to see fantastic new selection coming to shelves, coming to online e-commerce sites starting next month. Are the products, though, able to get there, given some of the supply chain issues we've seen? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. As we know, transportation and logistics are much more expensive uh, nowadays due to labor shortages, heavier import volumes, higher fuel costs, increased parts and material costs across the board. And so that is part of the reason why we expect the season to start early is because everyone knows we cannot afford to be late. We cannot afford to miss this. We have to get it in three to four months earlier than when we would normally bring these products in for the holiday season. Elaine, what do you trying to gauge the consumer is always such a difficult part of retail and in, in this environment where we're we're reopening but we're cautious about the delta variant how do you view the consumer here how are you talking to your clients about how they should view the consumer um, another great question so i think one of the biggest changes we saw last year with the consumer behavior during covid is that people stopped buying for the future you know their immediate mental shift came to what do i need today I'm buying for today. I'm not buying long-term items. I'm not buying investment pieces or a specific luxury item that I was saving up for. I'm not certain about the future. So I'm going to buy things that take care of me today. And that's why we saw a huge shift into buying for comfort, uh, practicality while bringing some joy. For example, we saw huge increases in athleisure wear, clothing, skincare, nail care and hair care, everything from home gadgets, appliances and decor, even home fragrances saw a massive jump. And so we are starting to see folks starting to buy more for the future again. That is definitely coming into play. Uh, we think that the back to school uh, specific uh, era that we're in right now has been incredibly productive and folks are very, very happy to see that uh, that consumer demand has been returning. But we're still counting on the short term buying 
I would say, area of focus for most consumers right now. It was really interesting that there were reports earlier this week that Amazon was looking at opening up several retail brick and mortar locations, which is the exact industry, Elaine, as you know, that they totally disrupted. For some of the merchants on Amazon, you know, what are you thinking? What are you advising? Is it too early to tell? Are we now thinking about shifting back and, and, well, maybe we want a retail presence? You know, uh, it's funny that you mentioned that because we think that this is potentially very exciting idea that if executed correctly, could be the next big thing in brick and mortar that we have been looking out for. As we know, you know, Amazon has, uh, you know, taken out some of the largest uh, major department stores in their brick and mortar presence over the last several years. In some ways, and ironically, it makes sense that they are now coming back to the space to try and claim it, you know, thinking that they can do it better than perhaps those that came before. We don't believe that brick and mortar in and of itself is dead by any means. We just think that it needs to manifest in a new way. And so based on what we're hearing, the department store could be incredibly productive. I think the secret sauce of Amazon's incredible customer service translating into a physical space is going to be really special. Not to mention that if they do focus on clothing, apparel, and perhaps even a beauty counter in that physical space, they could frankly, dominate the apparel space and the fashion space, which is a goal that they've had for several, several years now. Elaine, talk to us about luxury here. Um, How has it performed during the pandemic and and kind of what's the outlook going forward? Because I I was shocked when I see some of the e-commerce numbers from some of the luxury brands. I just can't imagine spending $10,000 on a piece of jewelry and buying it online. But apparently people do that stuff. Yeah, you're you're correct. Uh, so we have been seeing some really interesting trends, and I, I would say one of the other uh, um, movements that we're starting to see pick up and would expect to see continue is what we're calling the return of the Roaring Twenties. You know, folks uh, on the same token, even though they've been buying lots of matching tie dye hoodie and jogger sets and comfortable robes they're also getting tired of that as well. They want to be able to dress up. They want to be able to enjoy uh, feeling uh, glamorous and, and getting you know, made up. And so we're definitely seeing that there's a, a pretty steady stream of demand that's growing um, by the month in terms of you know, customers buying luxury items. And because they know that a lot of these store physical presences are still unavailable, they're willing to do it online. And to their credit, many brands uh, through their e-commerce sites have done a pretty amazing job of improving the overall customer experience online. And so we're seeing a nice, uh, I would say, overall shift of customers willingly buying very, very expensive items through e-commerce. Elaine Kwan, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Elaine Kwan, co-founder, partner of Quantified, a former head of luxury at Amazon, giving us an outlook for retail back to school. We're underway in the And it says, apparently, Elaine was saying, you know, we're going to start shopping for the holiday stuff even sooner. Well, our good friends at Charles Schwab, they have their latest latest Trader Pulse survey out. Tries to capture what's on top of mind for traders right now. And again, markets hitting new all-time highs. How much higher can we go? Barry Metzger joins us. He's Managing Director of Trading Services for Charles Schwab. Again, Barry, thanks so much for joining us here. And we see markets at or near all-time highs seemingly on a daily basis. Are traders getting nervous that 
we might be near the top here. Uh, good morning, Paul, and thanks for having me. Uh, well, you know, we're not actually seeing that. In fact, I would say in terms of market sentiment amongst our traders, one third of traders are bullish on the market and almost half are neutral on the next six months. So, you know, there is a mix. There's a mix of optimism and perhaps some caution. And no question, the rise of the Delta variant and inflation is clearly weighing heavily on their minds. You know, traders universally reported that the continuation of the COVID-19 pandemic is their number one concern right now. And 87% are concerned about the rise of the Delta variant and the potential market impact through the rest of the year. It is interesting because at least here in the media, we've been talking a lot about the rise of the variant. I had, for example, the Petco CEO on the other day, and we asked him that question, is the variant, are you seeing it in sales? And he said, no, like we, we haven't seen anything. Yet when you talk to some of the airlines, they are saying they're seeing a change in bookings and some hesitancy. So while it Maybe on top of minds, is that translating into a change in behavior, into a change in the way traders are trading? Yeah, Taylor, we, we, we have seen that. So, you know, in, in terms of what we're seeing in traders, you know, one third of traders have already changed their strategies since Delta emerged, opting to increase their exposure to equities, cash and fixed income. And among the traders that haven't made changes due to Delta, half say they may change strategies in the coming months. And so this group is looking at increasing cash exposure first and foremost, and then decreasing exposure to equities and investing in more domestic stocks. So we, we are seeing the Delta variant certainly play a role in how clients take a look at their portfolios. One of the things, Barry, I like when we talk to you, know, you guys at, at Schwab, you give us a good insight into the retail investor. We had a big retail trading boom, if you will, during the pandemic as folks were kind of locked down here. Is that a thing to stay or are we going to go back to more normalized trading activity from the retail spec sector? Now, Paul, the, the retail trading boom is here to stay. 86% uh, of traders think this trend will continue. You know, and at Schwab, we've seen the entrance of younger investors uh, also uh, come into play. And from 2016 to 2020, more than half of new Schwab retail households were 40 years old or under. For Q1 of 2021, more than 60% of new households were 40 and under. You know, the factors around the pandemic it definitely helped light a fire for new investors, but it's not the only factor we're seeing driving this. Um, I think it's a combination of three things. Greater ease and accessibility to investing and trading. So example of lower minimums or fractional shares. And then retail traders now have access to increasingly sophisticated tools that look very similar to what institutional trader use, use, and then you know lower trading costs, and most notably the move to zero commissions over the past year. Barry, I hate to ask this, but I hear that Gen Z, all their trading is Bitcoin and Dogecoin. And it was interesting <laughs> that there were some concerns about Robinhood's outlook, but that Dogecoin trading had actually really come and saved the day. Do you see that? What are they trading? Well, you know, it's a great question because this is something that is always on our mind. You know, we see both veteran and new traders alike digging into trading strategies and education. And this is what's really important. 
Nearly half of traders report spending more time on research before placing trades than they did before March of 2020. And that's fantastic. And on average, traders spend are spending seven hours researching and more than five hours pursuing trading education each week. And we see this reflected in our own data. Uh, as an example, viewership of the TD Ameritrade network increased 52% from June of 2020 to June of 2021. So, you know, traders have a preference for getting their information and research through online news sources and research reports um, from their right. trading firm or elsewhere versus, say, social media. You know, social media does provide some engagement opportunities, yep. but less than a quarter of traders are using it for trade ideas and education. Well, that's Good news, I think. Barry Metzger, Managing Director of Trading Services for Charles Schwab. Thank you so much for joining us. Charles Schwab out with our latest Trader Pulse survey indicating that the, the traders that Schwab chats with uh, remain generally bullish on this marketplace. Looking at the markets here, NASDAQ uh, leading the way up uh, almost one full percentage point today. That's a good segue to our next guest, Ted Smith co-founder and president of Union Square Advisors. Uh, I want to talk technology here, tech M&A, IPOs, capital raising. It seems like technology continues to lead this market. Ted, thanks so much for joining us here. love to get your thoughts on kind of what you guys are seeing uh, in the M&A space, particularly on the tech side. Well, thanks for having me on. And it's certainly been a busy year over the course of uh, 2021. Really, that this rally for us in tech started back in the second half of last year as we were first kind of coming out of the first wave of the pandemic. We continue to see tremendous activity across all uh, all elements of the tech sector, but particularly in M&A. Across all M&A today, we've got more deal volume in the first half of 2021 than we saw, saw all of last year. Tech continues to, to drive uh, tremendous deal volumes. We're up almost 350 percent this year over last year. So um, we're just seeing a lot of volume and, and really no signs of that abating. Is it shocking given that we've really had an administration that's focused on deal making, focused on promoting more competition, very hard language about anti-big tech. And yet some of these tech companies are saying, well, we're just going to try to squeeze it through while we can. I think there's some element of that. There's a little uh, ask for forgiveness rather than permission. But the reality of it is, even in the current administration, the, the targeting, if you will, or the focus of their uh, clamping down on big uh, on deal making is really reserved for the largest of the large companies. Um, so you see some concerns at the Facebooks and the Googles as there may be some some focus on those companies. But tech M&A volume really that we've seen over the course of the last year has been spread much more broadly than just those uh, largest of the large companies. And so that that activity is going to continue apace and really hasn't been the focus of this administration. Love to talk to you, Ted, about just kind of capital raising in general. You know, we used to just, you know, focus on IPOs, but then we had direct listings and, and SPACs and those types of things. What's the trend here? What are you seeing in the tech side in terms of capital raising uh, in the equity markets? Well, we, we think that the, that the trend is really all about making more options available for folks who are seeking liquidity. Yes, the regular way IPO market that we all know and love uh, continues to be active, and we think that's going to continue to be the, the case. Direct listings are not for everybody, but for a certain class of issuer, uh, not necessarily needing to raise significant capital, but simply wanting to see their shares traded, that's an option for them. And then SPACs represent yet another alternative that we think uh, will bring back some of the smaller 
sized IPOs or mid-sized IPOs that have uh, fallen out of favor over the course of the of the last few years of, as IPOs have gotten larger and larger and larger. Um, so what it really means from our perspective is, is the capital markets are, are evolving to enable different types of liquidity options for different types of companies, and we think that's a good thing. What are the biggest headwinds, though, that you see? From a capital raising perspective, I think there's continued scrutiny uh, with respect to are these companies ready to be public? We've seen some of that, particularly uh, in in uh, in the SPAC world. Uh, a number of companies have gone public through SPACs that are pre-revenue or very early stage uh, in their evolution, and I think there's going to be more scrutiny on that and investors in SPACs. Uh, there's been some headwinds with respect to the pipe market, as they say, public uh, uh, or private investment, rather, in public entities, which typically come along uh, alongside of SPACs, and that market has been sort of clogged up for a little bit, so we haven't seen as, as much uh, as much activity in the in the back half of the SPAC, the de-SPACing process, uh, if you will. So, but we think that'll all settle out from a from an M and A transaction perspective. There really isn't a lot of headwind other than the regulatory one about which we spoke earlier. Right now, corporate balance sheets reflect a lot of cash. Private equity. Uh, funds have a tremendous amount of capital available to them, and, and they need to put that capital to work. Otherwise, they need to uh, either invest it in much lower-yielding securities or give it back to their, their limited partners, neither of which is very palatable to the folks who, who run those big pools of money. Ted, what are some of the sectors that you guys are seeing some activity? I mean, I'm thinking, I'm trying to think what, what we write about and what we hear about the most, maybe like fintech, healthcare, IT. What are some of the areas that you think are going to continue to be active? Well, those are certainly two that we see a lot of activity in. FinTech has been particularly active as we continue to to really evolve and in some cases rewrite uh, the infrastructure that that underlies our you know the entire financial services sector. Obviously, crypto uh, currencies and 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 exchanges around crypto continue to get a, a, obviously a lot of press and there's a lot of evolution around what digital currencies are going to look like over the next five, ten years and beyond. Uh, we also think, to your point about healthcare IT, that there is a tremendous amount of, of ongoing evolution and, in some cases, revolution of the healthcare system, the use of software and digital technologies to improve patient outcomes, track uh, how patients are, are managed and monitored, and, and ultimately improve the overall healthcare system is getting a lot of focus, and we're seeing a lot of activity there. The broader digital transformation, I mean, many business processes today, today are still done by you know, by hand, uh, paper, pencil, uh, rough spreadsheets. We're continuing to see large organizations continue to invest in that. Um, and then things that, that are certainly not new to, to your audience uh, or to the tech sector, things like uh, e-commerce and, and, and cloud infrastructure continue to uh, evolve and change. And we see tremendous amount of investment in, the, in those areas to make, uh, to make the overall operations of business more efficient. So basically what you're saying is it's a good time to be a tech investment banker, tech investor. Uh, that's kind of what I'm hearing here. Ted Smith, co-founder and president of Union Square Advisors. Always appreciate getting his thoughts on the tech space. And, you know, uh, Taylor, as, as Ted was mentioning, it just it, there's a lot of activity out there. There's a lot of capital out there. And there's, a you know, um, a lot of M&A as a result and capital raising. And really interesting comments, not only about the shift that we've seen in direct listings and SPACs. And we saw flurry of activity. Some of that, of course, within the SPAC market has started to cool off. Yep. You wonder if there's now another push for that yeah exactly so we uh we'll keep on top of that green on the screen here today we will have more coming up uh taylor riggs sitting in for matt miller and paul sweeney this is bloomberg markets 
All right, the, as we talk about this COVID, the story has now moved towards the Delta variant, the impact on uh, that we're seeing on the hospital system, a lot of ICU beds uh, filled, most of them filled in a lot of key states. And the question is starting to turn to PPE. Are we going to have any type of shortages like we did back at the beginning? Let's bring in Michael Sinensky. He's CEO of WeShield. It is a PPE company. Michael, thanks so much for joining us here. We're starting to see the numbers in certain states go the wrong way, prompting some questions. Will we have any PPE shortages like we did at the beginning of the pandemic uh, in 2020? Thanks for having me. Um, the unfortunate answer is uh, we are tracking shortages that are happening right now. Over the next two months, we're expecting uh, major shortages as well as uh, huge spikes in prices for PPE. Can you remind us again, are these supply chain issues or is this a demand problem? So um, these are uh, supply chain issues that um, for the past three months, it was pretty slow uh, as far as the, um, you know, the COVID spread and, and people were getting a little lax. Um, so the supply that was on the ground was here and people weren't bringing in a lot of stuff from overseas because we were so saturated. But with this spike from Delta, um, all of the supply on the ground is getting gobbled up um, and, and causing us, you know, uh, left us with uh, a shortage as far as what's coming in, um, coupled with huge uh, uptick in shipping costs. Uh, so the perfect storm has been created of, of lack of supply on the ground and not a lot of stuff coming in. All right. So let's talk about just... You know, a lot of people, obviously, the vaccination rates uh, are much better than they were, uh, obviously, just even six months ago, and they continue to get better despite some hesitancy. How do you think this Delta variant will play out? Is, should we expect a peak at some time in the next weeks, or could this go even longer from your perspective? So um, the, the bad news is about Delta is people with vaccinations are still getting uh, COVID and sick. Um, so it is bypassing the virus spikes in the vaccines. The virus is just continuously. But still, a bit extraordinarily low percentage rate, though, right? Um, it, it, you know, as even with low percentage rates, it's still a lot of people. You know, the grand scheme of things. So um, when the hospitals are getting these new uh, infections with the vaccines, even um, you know they're getting pressured, and coupled with mask mandates, then the citizens put a pressure on the supply chain. So it's all these things combined. Uh, before COVID, they, you didn't have these pressures of every single person needing PPE. But when all these surges happen, plus mask mandates, plus hospitals getting inundated, that's when you have these uh, supply chain issues. There's been a lot of conversations from the previous administration, the current administration, and I'm thinking, and Michael, bear with me as I sort of do a bird's walk here with chips, right, and manufacturing chips and protecting our own supply chain here in the U.S. Where are we in terms of manufacturing PPE here in the U.S. as well? So we don't have to worry about some of the bottlenecks and the frustrations I think that we really had when we were trying to get this stuff from China. So um, we have seen, you know, progress in uh, national supply chain uh, with, with new pop-up uh, mass companies, especially in disinfecting wipe companies. Um, but the problem is, you know, and this is just overall macro, uh, where, you know, everything, labor, uh, the cost of the products to, to make them overseas is so much less than America. And, you know, when we are looking for these uh, personal protective equipment to, to be utilized one time, one time use, 
you know, people aren't really looking at uh, American-made um, as, as something which I wish we could, but the pricing is around half of it, you know, when you bring it in from overseas. So while we have made progress on, on having, um, you know, uh, American supply, uh, you know, come up since uh, the pandemic, it's still the cost benefits of, of bringing it in from overseas outweighs the, uh, you know, buying American products. So, Michael, you were a longtime restaurateur in uh, New York City. Give us your 30-second view of kind of what's the lay of the land of the restaurant scene here in, in New York City? Oh, so my company was uh, destroyed, um, you know, March 16th, uh, 2020, uh, when the government mandated shutdowns. And, um, you know, uh, right now it's been brutal with uh, around half the restaurants still never to reopen and coupled with the uh government funds, the, the uh, restaurant relief fund running out of money, uh, leaving a ton of restaurants just, um, you know, without any help from the government. So that that is uh, created a huge void of, of, you know, a lot of businesses being closed. And um, it's not looking bright right now. All right, Michael. Uh, thank you so much for that. We appreciate it. Uh, Michael Sininski, uh, CEO of WeShield uh, and a longtime restaurateur uh, in New York City. Very tough times uh, there. But, you know, we've seen what we have seen, you know, through this pandemic is the restaurants that have survived have become extraordinarily creative, whether it's outdoor seating or delivery or curbside pickup. And, uh, you know, uh, unfortunately, not enough for some, but uh, a lot of the others are hanging on there. Hopefully they can continue to uh, prosper. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.